Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 11 years experience in Brazil and China. For this month's episode, I spoke to Will Brown, the Africa correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, based in Nairobi, Kenya. Will got his start in journalism in India before going broke and needing to restart his career. He then got a job at The Economist, which saw him sent to Senegal as a stringer, despite not knowing much about what he was getting into. He started working for The Telegraph to report on the Sahel, the region below the Sahara, which is featured on at least a couple of episodes this year, and he then parlayed that into his current job in Nairobi. We'll talk at length about his experience reporting on the Tigray War in Ethiopia when a total information blackout in the country led him to rush to the border with Sudan. He'll tell about the intense reporting trip, interviewing many, many refugees to try to piece together some truly horrifying stories of the war as it broke out. Anyway, I'll admit I'm posting this episode about a week later than I had hoped. No real excuse, I just hadn't had the time to edit it. So I'll keep this introduction short. Thanks for listening to Foreign Correspondence as we wrap up another year, and I'll be back with another new episode in January. And now, here's my interview with Will Brown, Africa correspondent for the Daily Telegraph. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Will. Oh, thank you for having me. Very nice of you. And first, could you just set the scene for us a little bit? And tell us a little bit about where you are, about the space around you and where you are geographically, and a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. Right now, I'm, uh, I'm sitting in my flat in northern Nairobi. It's a, a beautiful um, kind of Kenyan day, blue skies outside. The last week of work, I've been kind of concentrating quite hard on a potential trip to Somalia. There's a huge amount of got admin and stuff to do, obviously. Uh, there's uh, incredible food insecurity right now in Somalia. It looks like there's uh, kind of hundreds of thousands, not millions of people going to go into famine officially uh, by, by the, at least by the end of this year. And so working out ways we can cover that safely, incredibly difficult to, a difficult country to report in at the best of times. So, yeah, that's basically what my, my last week has been looking like. Yeah, yeah. And that famine, I did a story early in the year about how, you know, climate scientists these days can predict these events like six months in advance, a year in advance sometimes. And even in spite of that, like, the world doesn't get ready. The, it's, it's a huge system failure of like global systems to like know, you know, hunger is coming, know a food crisis is coming and then just not be able to get their act together to, to do it. Just not enough money, not enough resources as in, and yeah in certain countries it's just a safety situation too yeah and that's i mean it's exactly exactly right and i think what's so sad about somalia is that countries which you know somalia has many kind of problems and often these in past famines many countries in europe have really kind of stepped up to the plate and they've kind of pumped money in to avert the deaths of tens and tens of if not hundreds of thousands of people but something which is really noticeable and what's going on right now is pretty much no one is contributing that much money apart from the United States, which is really stepping up and trying to avert this crisis. But, you know, countries like my own country, the UK, really hasn't done that much and is donating an absolute fraction of what it did when there was a previous crisis like this in Somalia. And sure. I, if you talk to NGO workers, UN people, I mean, they're saying that the only programs they have really around the world which are fully funded right now are the ones in Ukraine 
everything else is suffering dramatically. Yeah, I was going to ask if Ukraine had something to do with it, and it sounds like it does. Um, and the other, the other thing I was going to ask is, I, I guess I hadn't realized that you were a correspondent for all of Africa. Do you mostly work in East Africa, or do you go all over? How, how exactly does your regional coverage work? Well, I mean, for a British newspaper, there's definitely a focus on Anglophone Africa, so East and, uh, and South, but we do a lot on West as well, particularly on the Sahel region. I have a colleague in, uh, two colleagues in Southern Africa, and we work with various kind of freelancers and, and stringers across the continent. My main areas of focus are generally uh, Ethiopia, uh, Sudan, uh, DR Congo, Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, th- th- these kind of countries. Cool. And we'll get into that a bit more over the course of the podcast um, once we get back up to where you are today. But to start, I like to start way back at the beginning and figure out how you got to where you are. Uh, so if you could just tell us a little bit about where you're from, like where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest in journalism early on. Well, I was born in uh, southeast London in a place called Camberwell, which is quite close to maybe some of your listeners will know places like Peckham or Brixton. I was born there and brought up around this area. And no, I have to say, like, uh, both my parents uh, were were academics. And so there was a real kind of (laughs) focus when I was very young. I mean, they were always pressuring me, you've got to be a doctor or an architect or an engineer, you know, really Hmm. strong parental pressures on that thing. And I, and I, I kind of never was really that interested in that. And I don't think I really started to think about being a journalist until I was maybe about 17. I was kind of floating around a bit aimlessly, did very bad school, wasn't very good at English or history or anything like that. I I, I kind of spent far too much time kind of, you know, skateboarding or trying to get a girlfriend and, and stuff like <laughs> this. But then, um, and then uh, I think in it was in, I think, 2011, 2010, the Arab Spring started to erupt across the Middle East. And you saw these extraordinary pictures coming out of Egypt, Tahir Square, you know, people kind of chanting to get rid of the dictator and lights kind of lighting up the night. And it was quite extraordinary for for, for me looking at it as a a young man. And I kind of thought that's really, um, that's history in the making right there. And obviously it was an extraordinary period for foreign correspondents around the world. And and I, I began to get very interested in this. I don't know... If you remember, there was a lot of kind of uh, the Arab Spring was really quite, quite a heyday, it seemed, at least from the outside, for, you know, young freelance journalists who were kind of riding this, the wave of this new digital, um, you know, kind of being able to piece together things from across the region and file videos and photos, etc. And, and stuff. And, and I, I began to get really interested in that. But I still had, I had no idea uh, how I was meant to go about that. And I started a I was 17 at the time and I started a blog on um, the Middle East and I, I look back at it now and I think I deleted it a while ago. It was, it was yeah, so cringeworthy, you know, I was quite interested in, you know, youth politics, how it was working and, and just really understanding. It was completely naive stuff, but I really wanted to understand this. But anyway, this got the attention of an editor at the Times of London uh, and they gave me a, an internship on the foreign desk. And I was, I was 17 at the time, didn't know anything about anything. And then it was just a week-long work experience sort of thing. And, and, and when I was there, um, Gaddafi was killed by the rebels. And, you know, I was going through all the video footage and stuff like that. I mean, stuff like pretty exhilarating, tough stuff for a for 17-year-old to be doing on a, an international news desk. And that really, I think that got onto my skin, that experience. And I felt it was so exciting and everything. But 
really, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing at that point. And so, yeah, I guess that's the first seed, seed of it. And then and I, I think, you know, I went to university, I went to the University of Manchester. I, I ended up studying history. And when I was at university, I, I became really fascinated by India. And I think that's maybe something to do with growing up where I did um, in southeast London, because it's such an incredibly ethnically diverse place. And in a way, so many people in the area are, are kind of children of empire in their own little way. So, you know, at my school, you know, I might be the only English person in the class and at points and, you know, everyone else, you know, their families would have come from India or Pakistan or Bangladesh and Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, you know, from all over the world. And I think that was a really enriching experience growing up. And I always kind of wanted to find out a little bit more about the, yeah, I think the, the links, because it's not, you know, we're only just getting to the point in the UK where you can start talking about empire and talking about the long lasting impact that's had on both the world and, and British society. I mean, the rest of the world is, that's, you're completely fine doing that. But in Britain, it's only really beginning to crack with some brilliant books being published on the subject and everything. But anyway, so what I was saying, going back, I was fascinated by India and I wrote my dissertation, my thesis on um, women's rights in modern India and different legal cases which happened. And and I still had the idea of being a you know journalist in the back of my mind, but I had no really idea how to do it. I mean, did I really want to do like a graduate scheme? You know, there'll be thousands of applicants for like a few places at the Daily Mail or something like that. I, I didn't really feel that was that wasn't really for me. And and so I ended up um, I got a job at the British Council after university, and the British Council was like. For those who don't know, it's a bit like the, a charitable cultural arm of the British government. You know, the British government funds it to go and go do teaching or whatever around the world, cultural relations. And and so I, I was sent off as a teacher, a history teacher, to a school just outside Delhi, a private school. And this isn't kind of volunteering or anything like that. You know, I was getting paid and not that much, about, you know, $200 a month or something. But it's a significant amount of money for, for many people in India. Mm-hmm. And I ended up teaching colonial history to classes of Indian children, which was actually at points really, really quite problematic. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> as you, I'm sure you can imagine and kind of like, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, they'd be like, you Britishers did this to us, you know, and this and this. And I'm like, well, I'm 21. I, I'm 22. I haven't done any of this. You know, I'm just, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that was quite interesting. But very quickly, I, I you know, <laughs> very quickly, I, I realized that I didn't have, what you needed, you know, I've got an enormous amount of respect for teachers, but I definitely don't have that ability to be able to stand up in front of a, a classroom full of like, you know, 30, rowdy 13 year olds and to get their attention and to like, you know, inspire them, get them interested. But anyways, yeah. And, and so I was a bit depressed. Everything felt very lonely. I was in this area of India, uh, of outside Delhi, which is like a sub city of Delhi called Ghaziabad. You know, I still today, I talk to some Indian friends about Ghaziabad and they're absolutely shocked that I went to live there because it's a pretty rough place it's like I was told when I was there it had like a you know a higher kidnapping ratio than Mexico City or something like that and and it was just yeah very kind of urban sprawl going out into the into like old rice paddies kind of banditry people being kind of mugged on the side of the road in the middle of the night so it wasn't a very nice place is what I'm trying to get at and so what I would do on the weekends is I would um, I would I would take the train into Delhi and um, I'd stay at a very cheap hostel I knew and I and I'd just stay there for the weekend and I, I'd go for long walks around Delhi because I was really fascinated by the city I, I don't know if you've ever been it's you know it's I think William Dalrymple the British historian writes really well about this in some of his older books and it's it's kind of like an onion of a city, you know, so many different layers on it. It's such a fascinating place. And, um, you, you know, everything from 
the Lutjens kind of architecture to the to the Mughals to the Afghans. It's it, it's so many different layers of it. And so I, I would I just walk around, and one day I was um, I kid you not, I was walking through this park, which is my favorite one of my favorite places in Delhi called uh, Lodi Gardens. It's a beautiful kind of old kind of. I would say kind of mausoleums kind of dotted around this park and it looked always looked quite misty and it was always empty but it wasn't mist it was like air pollution but it kind of gave it a sense of like I don't know I guess like romance or something I don't know <laughs> but I was walking around this park and I was pretty like kind of a bit forlorn you know a bit like what the hell am I doing <laughs> like why am I here like I really hate my job I, I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> anyway so I but then I saw these these two women I heard these two women they're having a picnic and they were speaking French and in a completely non-sort of like dodgy way, I know if you kind of go up and talk to people, you know, you're often seen as a bit of a creep, you know, and it wasn't like that in any way. I wasn't kind of, <laughs> but I went up and I, and I tried, I, you know, I speak a tiny bit of French at, white, at the time I did. And, and I kind of just started speaking French to them. I said, oh, bonjour, ça va, la, 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 la. And, and it turned out that they were two, um, they were two journalists for a French TV, France 2, two young kind of journalists. And yeah, I got on really well with them. And, you know, we, we talked for ages about like what they did, what I was doing, and, and they started going giving me advice and stuff. And one of them, this lovely lady, she said, well, you know, in a very nice kind of uh, French accent, like, we'll, uh, I think you should quit your job and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and try and be a journalist. And so I, um, and so I decided to do that and uh, I moved in. You know, this is a bit kind of crazy thing to do, really, but I had a bit of, you know, money left over from this teaching job and not that much at all. <laughs> but, you know, in India, you can live quite cheaply. And so I went to live with one of their um, colleagues who had a spare room going really cheaply. And, and I kind of set out and I was like, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to make this work. And, you know, I would studiously read every morning the, all the Indian papers, which are often very, very complicated to read. You know, like the Times of India is an absolute mess <laughs> of the paper. And, and I was just trying to you know, just send emails out and out and out and out, you know, just trying to get some attention. And there were some very, you know, some journalists who will not be named, but like were incredibly rude to me. Like really quite like put me down. And it was quite depressing. But there were others, I think like Douglas Buzzvine of uh, Reuters, who was very kind and, and met me for a beer and chatted about what I could potentially do for them and all this stuff. Nothing came of it. But yeah, it's, it's nice. It's a confident building, you know. You know, you get an idea of stuff. And eventually, I, through one thing and another, I started working on trying to do more research on, on sex trafficking. And this is basically because I was walking around old, old um, Delhi one day and I walked past this police station on the one of these roads really crowded and then no sooner I'd walk past this police station than this man offered me a, a young girl for, for, for sex and I was so shocked by this and then I realized that afterwards I kind of this road called GB Road GB Marg and this was like a road where every single house was a brothel it was a, the largest brothel area in old Delhi and I, I was so shocked by this and I started doing more research into it and obviously I've been working on Indian women's rights and, and secularism and all these issues at university. So I had a few contacts. I knew some people. I started delving into the topic and I became kind of obsessed with writing about this stuff. And, you know, I got a few bylines here and there. Nothing special. You know, when you're like, you know, 22 hours at the time. I mean, you know, you're getting a few things out there, but, you know, nothing incredible, nothing award winning or anything like that. What sort of publications? So I did a piece for Vice, which I was very proud of at the time. I look back at it now a bit. It's a bit cringy, really. It wasn't very well written. I think they completely rewrote it. I did some research for the Guardian, for the Guardian, you know, and then the big thing I started working on was a potential project with the BBC correspondent at the time, who was very interested in doing a big piece on this. He was called Justin Rowlett, BBC South Asia correspondent, very good guy. Yeah, and I was doing, I was trying to do a bit of work for Justin Rowlett, and he was very interested in 
there were these kind of some of these NGOs I've made contact with and was getting on really well with. They were, um, you know, working in Calcutta or uh, Mumbai and they were doing what seemed like really amazing work trying to rescue girls. There's a lot of trafficking in India of, of Northeast Indian women and girls because they, they're kind of seen as exotic. They've got lighter skin. They look more kind of like they're from Myanmar or Southeast Asia. And, and so there's a lot of trafficking of them. And, and what they do, these kind of these NGOs, they try and go into the brothels and, and often the police are very corrupt and in on the game. And these, these NGOs try and kind of rescue these girls and get them out and, and then reunite them with their family. And we just thought, Christ, if we could just film this whole process working out, like film that, you know, from these brothel spies who are going in and finding the girls to going up to um, re- reuniting with their family. My God, that would be an extraordinary story and really kind of engage people with the topic. But anyway, nothing worked out. And so after about a year, like, you know, I, I was very skinny at this point, <laughs> eating a lot of very cheap kind of dal and, and mixed veg curry, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> continually getting sick with everything. And, um, and I ended up, I just ran out of money and I had about, you know, something like, I couldn't pay my rent, I had about like, 500 pounds left in my bank account basically enough for a ticket home and I decided that's it I've, I've tried and it didn't work it was a good it was you know I, I did some good work but this is impossible I'm, I'm really struggling and um, <laughs> so I, I took a flight back to the UK um, and my family live in London so I just stayed in a this small room there and just basically was pretty depressed for a few months just kind of barely got out of bed just felt like I'd a bit of a failure and everything and I think it's quite difficult to get out of those dips when you're when you are a freelance because it's um didn't really feel that you know I came from you know middle class family there are no absolutely zero connections in the media like nothing and so it's not like you know I could rely on you know daddy's friend to to help me out or something like that and and often I think in the UK media scene I'm not sure about the American scene but definitely in the UK media scene like there's a lot of that going on you know and uh, I didn't really have any of those connections but anyway so then I, I got out of this rut and I started kind of basically knocking on doors in London being like guys you know can I do an internship here can I do something can I whatever and and eventually I, I uh, the economist somehow very luckily agreed to give me a kind of you know bit of work on the back of the paper basically just as a kind of doing research and kind of like writing small little things nice no, no, I, yeah yeah is is very lucky it was unpaid the first bit and everything but eventually I got, oh. uh, yeah. And um, yeah, obviously that's a privilege. I know many other people can't afford to do that. I did eventually end up getting paid for it, but at the time I didn't think I would. But I was just, I was desperate to keep trying on that front. And um, by some kind of sheer miraculous bit of luck, basically I got shortlisted for an award at the Times of London for young foreign correspondents it's called the Richard Beeston Bursary. And this is while I was at The Economist. And the prize of this bursary was basically to, be trialed as a foreign correspondent for the Times of London and be able to go to one place in the world you really want to and write stories for them from there, where, you know, it might be Ethiopia or Iraq or something. Was it for something you wrote while you were in India still or or something you wrote at The Economist? Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah. So, so I applied for the bursary thinking like... Um, thinking kind of, okay, well, let, I want to go back and finish these stories I didn't manage to do in India, but for the Times of London, you know, maybe this is a perfect way of doing it. But anyway, I mean, this, and, and I, I got down to a shortlist, but I didn't win it, you know, I didn't get it. But in that meantime, while I was being shortlisted, the, you know, some editors at The Economist caught hold of that. They heard that I'd been shortlisted for this thing. I think it was this, this old kind of Fleet Street rivalry. I think they just didn't want you know, one of their people have a low, even if they didn't know his name, they didn't like the idea of him being pinched by another paper. 
Right. Even though they're not massive competitors, but it was, it was, yeah. So the, the editor came up to me and said, so you're Will Brown, are you? And I said, yes, I am. And he was, it was the foreign editor. And he said, so I've heard about this Richard Beeston thing. What about doing some foreign correspondence for us? And <laughs> it was incredible. It was extraordinary. And I was just kind of a bit like, and he was like, are you interested in, in going to West Africa? And uh, how's your French? And my, my French is wasn't that good at the time. I was just like, oui? I mean, what do you say at that moment, right? <laughs> and um, he said, okay, well, write some stuff for me. I want to, I want to see some copy. I want to see how good you are. And, and I wrote it and he, he liked it. I think it was crap. I think he was being nice, but I think maybe he saw, he, he saw something. And he said, okay, well, you can go be a, you know, give you this title of West Africa correspondent and you can basically be a super stringer for us and go around and file copy. And, you know, not much money at all. I mean, getting paid... Uh, per article and the economist doesn't publish many articles but it was the huge break i've been really looking for and, and hoping for and, and it's extraordinarily lucky it's amazing looking back on it and it was slightly ridiculous as well did the economist not have a west africa correspondent or how was it so easy for them to slot you in there they just had a very good west africa correspondent based in lagos but they had decided to leave for whatever reasons and they say they were in between something so the economist had a kind of the economist generally has like one or two staffers like full-time, you know, the guys earning the big bucks, doing the big stories. And then they have like loads of kind of smaller, younger, cheap people like me <laughs> kind of running around. And so I, I did that. So I, you know, fly off to Dakar. I, they say, do you want to be based in Abidjan in Cote d'Ivoire or do you want to be in Dakar, Senegal? And I, I spoke to some of those friends, those French ladies from the park in India who first kind of encouraged me to take my first break. And they'd actually lived in Senegal before and said, and it was like, oh, c'est clair, vas-y, uh, allez, allez à Sénégal. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And so, um, <laughs> and so yeah, it's it quite, it quite an extraordinary moment in my life. And just got on a plane and set off there with kind of like a, I had a, it was a string of position. You don't really have any backing, really. I mean, you have a business card and an email address, which goes a long way. But, you know, I didn't have a company computer or anything like that. I was still using this computer I'd had from university, which I got for being dyslexic and a crappy phone and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and yeah, anyways, I rocked up in West Africa and it was like, my God, like initial baptism by fire. Very, very tough. Very difficult. Kind of trying to justify yourself why you're there. And I basically just I think I just really put my head down and worked incredibly hard. And it was a great experience. I mean, I'm always wary about people using words like adventure to describe their time in Africa, particularly like Western correspondence, which I think, you know, that market's been done and saturated and you really shouldn't, you know, describe it because it was an adventure. You know, it was an extraordinary being 23, traveling around West Africa, writing these pieces, you know, arranging interviews with, I managed to arrange an interview with the, um, with the president of the then president of Guinea, a guy called Alpha Conde. And just basically threw myself at everything I could. And uh, but then I, I started really to build up, to travel kind of quite extensively across the Sahel region underneath the Sahara Desert. It's Mali, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad. And th this is back in when, when was this? This is 2018. You know, West Africa doesn't get that much press in the Anglophone world. But I mean, this is just before, like, you know, obviously we'd had like lots of, awful things, a French intervention in Mali to stop kind of a rebel jihadist army taking the capital Bamako. There's insecurity, don't get me wrong, but the pace of the decline, it just really started to pick up dramatically. Just at that moment, I started to go to those countries, for example, like Burkina Faso, I think I went to sometime in 2018. And I, I would still, you know, I drive across the country 
relatively fine. I mean, there were some areas in the north you just wouldn't go anywhere near, or near the Malian border and stuff. But you could really still get across at the countries and, and, and do some decent reporting. But by 2019, it was just absolutely impossible. The speed of the decline, the criminal gangs, the armed groups were just sprouting up absolutely everywhere. A good friend of mine was another journalist at another news organisation, and uh, they were almost kidnapped in Burkina Faso. A drone was following them, some, a handheld drone, and they managed to get out. So the government just basically retreated further and further towards the capital, Ouagadougou, and, and Kaya, another kind of major city, and also Boba Jalasso. And, and you, you couldn't really do anything out of that. But, but, but so I, what I'm trying to say from all this is I started really to concentrate on the Sahel region. absolutely fascinated by it. Just from a journalistic perspective, I mean, just the amount of stories there, you know, the migration routes to Europe, the French intervention, French uh, uranium mines, kind of spy networks which exist across the desert, the Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State allied jihadists, the kind of the way that different political leaders would manipulate different kind of communal tensions to their own benefit, potentially supporting ethnic militias or whatever to kind of get their way and secure mining interests, you know. And it's an extraordinary region and it's so deeply undercovered. As I said, I mean, in terms of stories, I mean, you've literally got, like, the military guarding helicopters in, for example, some places like Burkina Faso and Mali, and these helicopters will fly into gold mines and leave these gold mines, which are surrounded, you know, by armed groups and jihadists, and they leave these gold mines with, like, bags of gold. It's just, like, almost felt just crazy, just from a writing story perspective. And I've always been fascinated by that. And I think... After a while, I, I did a few good stories and the conference doesn't have bylines, so no one really knew who I was. So it was quite nice to just pass it out anonymously kind of thing. And after a while, then T- Daily Telegraph newspaper, you know, Britain's finest broadsheet. They were very interested in, in doing a big series of features on the Sahel region. And I was one of the, definitely not one of the only journalists, but I, I was working for another English language outlet on that particular area. And so they got in touch and they're like, oh, well, do you want to do some stuff for us? And... Speaking frankly, I mean, with all respect to my editor, the economist, it was, it was paying much better and it looks much more interesting. So I, so I, 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 I jumped ship and started working on this. But wait, do you, I mean, as a super stringer, you couldn't just work for both at the same time? They wouldn't uh, yeah. allow that at the kind of... Uh, no, they definitely would allow that. I, I guess I sensed at the time that there was a room for a permanent position at the Telegraph. And uh, okay, yeah. And so I, I doubled down on that sort of thing. And I really loved the other, the correspondent at the time was it's a man called Adrian Bloomfield, who's a great friend. And he's kind of fantastic journalist and been a brilliant mentor to me. And, and likewise for the editors at the time, Jessica Winch, Paul Nookie, you know, at, at The Telegraph. People may not know these names, but I feel like I should give them a shout out because they've just been so brilliant. And then we started just working on these big set of features because basically the Brits were, the British government had announced this so-called sort of pivot to the Sahel. This is back in 2017, 2018. It was kind of pushed by certain kind of foreign office types like the former development minister, African minister, uh, Rory Stewart and stuff like this. And, and they basically, it was basically saying, look, the Sahel region is just a stone's throw away from Europe, a few days drive from Mediterranean shores. You know, this is the new front line of terror, of the, of the war on terror, I should say. ISIS affiliates are going from strength to strength in this region. We need to be caring more about this area of the world. And, you know, the populations are booming. Everyone and their mother is is sort of in places like Niamey, like in terms of countries. So like in places like Niamey, Mali, whatever, you have incredible diplomatic efforts from the Chinese, the Gulf, the Saudis, the Americans, the French, 
And I think for a while, and there was an idea in Britain that in Westminster, they needed to push this area to, to kind of get more of a sense of it. We didn't really have many embassies apart from Senegal. And um, so there's a big push in, in Westminster. And so that, you know, the, obviously the British newspaper, they wanted to cover this push really well. And the sort of cherry on the top of the cake of this push was to deploy 300 British peacekeepers to Mali, which is quite a small, inconsequential number. Uh-huh. But, you know, it kind of gave, it gave it that zing for a story. <laughs> and it is quite a story. You know, the idea of 300 British peacekeepers going on the largest UN deployment since Bosnia into this region where Britain has historically had no relationship role or anything and kind of you know scouring the desert for armed groups and near Timbuktu it was quite I think it it sold for a bit in London people were very interested in it they wanted to find out more about this region of the world they had no idea about and so anyway so I, I kind of was brought on to report about this and I did that for a while and then one thing led to another and I was offered a job in um as an Africa correspondent for the Telegraph based in Nairobi and I've been doing that job now for three years so I'll bring that extended, uh, embarrassing biography to an end there, I think. (laughs) No, that was good. That was good. So let me see. Oh, yeah, I was just wondering about The Economist. And, I mean, were they picking up a story a month? Was it? Or was it really more of a trickle? And, I mean, what kind of stuff were were you doing for them? If there's anything you remember from that time. No, it was, it was a trickle of articles, I would say. I mean, for, certainly at first, I think I had some international bylines I'd written for The Times and stuff before and The Guardian and Vice. But, you know, I think The Economist is a very specific style and it's very hard to master that style. An enormous amount of effort goes into writing one of those articles. No, it was paid by article at the time, had a small retainer. What was great about my time there is I, I did have a Economist is one of the few public print publications which is just going from strength to strength in terms of kind of its readership in terms of so there's money going around for travel and so I did basically just kind of left Dakar for sometimes like more than a month at a time just trying to travel to as many places as possible and understand more and I remember like meeting someone this fantastic analyst at, at International Crisis Group a man called Ronaldo Dupin he's an old hand he's been in West Africa for decades and decades but he said well look you've got to get on top of a lot of things very quickly. I think the best thing you can do is just to drive around the region as much as possible and speak to as many people as possible and really get outside the cities and see how people live and find stories that way. And so that's why I try to do that as much as possible. And so, well, I guess there's quite a lot of stories from that time. I guess if I was going to flag any, I would flag, I mean, I think one of the hardest and probably doesn't look that hard to anyone looking in, one of the hardest pieces I've ever written is one about mining abuses in Guinea, Guinea Conakry, which is a small West African country which many people in the West don't really know about or get confused with the other Guinea-Bissau or Equatorial Guinea or something. But basically this country, Equatorial Guinea, is almost like a kind of mini Congo in terms of resources. It's extraordinarily wealthy, has the largest uh, Simandu, this huge iron reserve there, which has been constantly fought over, subject of massive corporate corruption. And it also has some of the largest bauxite reserves and bauxite doesn't sound particularly sexy it's not like gold or diamonds or you know emerald gems whatever you know it's basically fundamental to our way of life it's what we use to make aluminium which obviously is in everything from planes to phones to cooking utensils to to cars everything and it's got some of the largest reserves of this and i found it so fascinating how different like how china has basically invested absolutely vast amounts in guinea because it's the biggest aluminium producer in the world. It wants to kind of dominate that market. 
and it's done this for a range of di different companies, primarily among them one called SMB. And uh, so one of my first big stories I set out to do was to investigate what was going on with this. You know, maybe because I was just inexperienced, maybe because I thought overthought it, but at the time it was just an immense task. I felt like I was going up against a huge company trying to do this. And, and anyway, so I managed to, I wrote about kind of different mining abuses, how villagers have been conned off their land and everything like this. And that article's um, online still, you can read it, 2018. And for me, that was a real victory when that finally came out because it doesn't look very particularly impressive, but I know that the stuff I had to master to get on top of that was tricky. And so I would say that was one of the, the big things I did. I, I think then quite rapidly after those kind of pieces, I started shifting on to looking at more subjects of like climate change, conflict, how the two are interlinked, went to Lake Chad on my own. Well, I, at the time I, was, I wasn't completely on my own. I was with a UN agency and just went around interviewing different people who'd had their lives destroyed by Boko Haram jihadists and yeah, trying to tell their stories and draw a link if there was one to climate change and how the, the, cl the climate was collapsing all around them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in the case of stories like this, are you often going out not knowing if The Economist is going to take the story or not? Or do, do you usually, you've already pitched and the editor says, this is a good idea, you should go for it? I was pitching. They were very receptive to ideas, which was good. But often, as you know, I mean, if you're writing about an incredibly complicated country and you're reporting an incredibly complicated country, I mean, you, you might think something a thousand miles away in Dakar about the reality of what's going on, you know which is kind of like parceled down to you through different, I don't know, wire copy maybe, or maybe uh, an NGO press statement or, you know, some kind of shady comms guy for a business, you know, for some multinational you meet in Senegal. But, but you, you, don't, you don't really know what stories until you get out there, you know. And so, yeah, it would always be a kind of a work in progress, just kind of go out there, you know, and talk to as many people as, as possible as we could and get, try and get as near to the truth with that as you can. Sure. Yeah. So maybe that's a good segue then to talk about some stories. So I usually start with, for that, a story that got away. If there's a story you ever wanted to do, tried to do, or for whatever reason couldn't do, yeah, either you know a reporting trip went bad, you couldn't convince an editor to be interested, you know, uh, couldn't get people to talk to you, but a story that didn't work out for some reason. Does anything come to mind? So I think one of the, the stories which got away from me was... A year or two ago, I met someone I knew to be a uh, an arms dealer, uh, international arms dealer, and they were I you know and I met them for a dinner, and I knew they were running guns in and out of Libya, and I knew there was some link to the Gulf, and I knew this person that if you got their trust they would kind of spill the beans on some of this stuff, and I tried very hard to get them to trust me and I couldn't do it and we went our separate ways and I feel that could have been an extraordinary piece about gun runners running guns across the Saharan desert in flying low in low planes well that's what I've been told by people who knew this guy and knew what he was doing so I think that's one of the the most frustrating difficult stories to get away because it was just so dependent on one person and I couldn't win his trust and I didn't say the right word things I didn't say the right words I didn't kind of maybe my, my manners were off maybe I was leaning too far forward in my seat 
you know, maybe, um, yeah. So, so I think that's probably the one. Sure. Yeah. That would have been a very interesting story. I mean, it's hard to get on beneath what's going on in the, that sort of illegal activity because yeah, you really have to get somebody to trust you to, to open up on it. I'm curious, how, how did you meet this guy? Because, yeah, I, I was visiting, like, my friend in Nigeria. And, you know, you do meet kind of shady characters. And, like, you know, sometimes it's clear, like, oh, this guy's, like, laundering, launders money for a living. Like, that's, like, what he's doing, living in Lagos. <laughs> uh, and I guess these characters just kind of hang around. I mean, how did you run into this person or find this person? It was just a friend of a friend, basically. And they had told me that they had, I think, had a few whiskeys or something with this guy, got on really well with him and, you know, spent some time with him over a week or two. And this guy was very wealthy and, you know, they started talking about business and talk, starting talking about the region. And I don't think that, that the arms dealer guy wasn't intimidated by this guy. And, and, so, and, so, and so they got on and talked about it. And then that's how I heard about it, basically. So friend to friend, really. That's it's a strange connection. But I, I think, yeah, sometimes you have these weird ones. Cool. Okay. Well, that, that's a good example of one that got away. And then the other one is pick a story you've worked on. And if you can tell us the story behind the story, a little bit about how you came up with the idea, how you executed it all the way through to publication. Maybe the best story to tell is, I think two years ago, is about two years ago now, the Ethiopian civil war started and the federal government led by uh, Abiy Ahmed who won the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago for making peace with Eritrea, basically launched a military operation. I think they referred to it at the time as special military operation. I can't quite remember. A bit like what Putin did. And he invaded this northern region of Ethiopia, uh, the Tigray region, which I'm sure many of your listeners would have heard extensively about by now. And basically they turned off the, they turned off the switches. And they turned off all communications, cut out the power, and they launched this massive military offensive with Eritrea, which lies to the north of Tigray. And no one could work out what was going on, but obviously it was quite clear there was a massive conflict going on, huge military maneuvers, and getting reports and broken things, nothing you can confirm, but reports of artillery shelling of civilian areas, potential war crimes, all this kind of stuff, but no one could get in. And I remember, um, you know, basically all of the press in, in East Africa descend on the Ethiopian embassy trying to get visas there. But it's pretty obvious very early on that they're not going to give any visas to anyone, really. And the only ones who really stood a shot at reporting this well were the ones in the already in-country, you know, the fantastic wire reporters there and another correspondent from The Economist and, and stuff like this, from the international media, that is. And so me and uh, two friends, very good Dutch journalists, we decided we would try and get into Sudan as soon as possible. Sudan has a border with the Tigray region. And um, we decided to just basically leave the Ethiopian embassy and go straight to the Sudanese one. And as luck might have it, one of the people we went with to the embassy had an old connection to some people who are now in power since the revolution in Sudan and um, you know they were keen on getting journalists in 
And we basically sat down with the ambassador. Well, it was, I think it was like some kind of like a high commissioner or something. Someone quite senior at the embassy anyway. I've forgotten his exact title. We sat down with him for, for two hours in Nairobi and just talked with him about how interested we are in Sudan and had endless cups of tea and bottles of water and <laughs> and, and, and just chatted with him and had a really nice time. And, and at the end, by the end of it, he said, OK, we'll come back tomorrow or something and we'll, we'll give you the visa. And so this gave us a bit of a head start in front of this kind of massive press pack who descended on the embassy the next day and then by that time there was a massive backlog of visas because everyone wanted to get in and so we flew off i think the next day or, or when was it to sudan and um hit the ground running drove straight up to the border of ethiopia and it, it was i think one of the extraordinary experiences in my life driving through this kind of desert we almost got arrested by a member of the, the secret police who didn't know why the hell we were there Sudanese secret police and we managed to get to these refugee camps it's just these camps which are just kind of coming out on the border basically and th these were actually some of the old locations of camps where people had fled to decades ago fl fleeing the derg and the famine in Ethiopia and there's a there's a river partly separating Tigray from Sudan and it was almost like, it may sound cliched or trite to say this, but it was almost like like something like a Rohingya situation. It was kind of people swimming across, getting boats across the small, tiny river. And these often incredibly well-dressed Tigrayans just sitting in the sun, standing in the sun with umbrellas, just ethnic Tigrayans, absolutely traumatized by what was going on on the other side. And so we started to interview as many people as we could. It was dozens and dozens of people we were talking to and trying to work out what on earth was going. And everyone was just saying, you know, they're attacking from Eritrea, they're attacking from the north, this bomb's coming in, they, you know, they killed my family, they did this, they did this. And people were talking about kind of men with machetes just killing people. And these were later we found out were kind of ethnic militias which are allied to the federal forces of Ethiopia. It was something. And then very quickly after we got there, some other journalists turned up and then the Ethiopians, I think, realised, Addis Ababa realised this wasn't a very good look for them and allusions were being drawn to the Rohingya thing, the Rohingya crisis, sorry. And they shut down that border. They posted armed men along that border. That's according to eyewitness testimony from other journalists. And they basically stopped people coming across. So, it got, you know, the amount of refugees, I think, got capped to somewhere around 50,000, 60,000 maybe, the ones who made it into Sudan. And this story was went around the world because it was suddenly we had an insight into what was going on behind that blackout behind that communications blackout we had a solid insight of what was going on you know you would interview dozens of people and try and corroborate events from them and it was very difficult but yeah so I think that was there was a series of pieces I produced at the time with my colleagues Dutch colleagues there I don't I, yeah I've, I'm not sure I quite have the, the language to describe it really yeah wow how, uh, sorry, did you say how how long did you spend there reporting it? I can't remember exactly. I mean, I think it was about five days, something around that that time. We didn't have any internet, so it was kind of you know calling it on you know writing your copy in forty centigrade heat on on a notebook and then just calling up the editor on a sat phone sort of thing. It wasn't very good internet at the time or, or communication. So yeah, something like five days, and then we would drive every night to. A, a city in eastern Sudan called uh, Gedaref, which is about, I don't know, two hours, three hours. I can't quite remember away. And then I think maybe a day after we got there, I think that the entire world media descended on that place. And that's when they really shut the border and stopped people coming across. 
Yeah, so that's crazy. This all happened in a very short span of time, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. The media blackout, the military operation, everybody goes, tries to get a visa, you get there, they shut the border. Like, this is a real breaking news type situation. Yeah, yeah. Did you produce a lot of stories out of those five days, or, or what is the style of The Telegraph? So it was kind of like producing maybe a dispatch or two a day. So I guess, what, like a thousand words? dispatches one a day then you know podcast stuff radio stuff video stuff the whole lot really just trying to get as much information out there as possible i remember some of the the stories were so unbelievably horrific actually like really quite something and i've been reporting by that point i've been in you know reported on boko haram in chad in, in northern mali in timbuktu in central mali i'd seen and heard of a few nasty things you know I wasn't a spring chicken by that point but the the level of brutality that we were hearing about it was quite pretty haunting and horrific yeah and then what we did was you know we were also trying to go around into these groups of refugees seeing if anyone had a phone everyone had run out of battery no one had any battery loads of people just left without anything and just seeing if they had had any pictures or anything like that but I think the Addis Ababa were very um very clever in the way that they'd seen the power of I think a lot of governments around the world have seen the power of social media. They saw that in the Arab Spring. And they cut the power lines and the communications lines, so I think, for several days before the actual offensive started. So by that point, most people didn't have any battery on their phones. And you, you're meeting these young men or women, and they had no idea where their father or mother were. They had no way of communicating with them. Yeah, so we were going around trying to find if they'd taken pictures of the bombing or anything like that. And we found a few. It was very, very difficult, though. No one had anything. It sounds like uh, I'm not overly familiar with it, but were atrocities being committed by both sides, or was it mostly the government and the Eritreans, or what was what exactly was the dynamic? At the early stages, there were definitely atrocities being committed against non-ethnic Tigrayans, but I think the bulk of everything we heard, at least at the time, and I think bulk of the research which has come out since and the reporting since, says definitely in those early days of the war, the bulk of the atrocities were, were committed against the Tigrayans. I think later on in the war, that dial shifted because the Tigrayan Defence Forces did this stunning sort of military reverse in the middle of this communications blackout. They beat back the Eritreans, they beat back the federal forces and started advancing into the other Ethiopian regions around Tigray, like Amhara. And then from that point on in the conflict, a lot of atrocities being committed against other people as well. Sure. And has the conflicts resolved now? Is that right? So it's all a bit confusing, but at the stage we're at, there has been peace deal signed. I think a lot of people are very, very hopeful because the level of suffering has just been off, you know. I mean, you know, Ukraine justifiably has got a huge amount of attention, but I think a lot of estimates now suggest from respectable people, you've got to understand that a lot of people involved in the Ethiopian civil war are deeply compromised. But I think respectable people now estimating maybe in somewhere in the region of 500,000 deaths in that war, making it the deadliest in the world today, the deadliest conflict. And aid embargoes, that's well documented, stopping food from reaching um, starving people, basically. So the, the scale of the suffering kind of off the charts and so much of this has happened in, in the dark. I was never allowed into Ethiopia since that first stint of reporting, but there were some in other 
journalists who were already in the country and journalists who managed to get in, lots of journalists now managed to get into Tigre and done brilliant reporting. AFP, for example, CNN, BBC, I think Arte, uh, the French-German TV channel, managed to do some excellent stuff quite recently. I think that there is a lot of doubt just surely because of the both sides, the, the Tigrayan local government side and the regional government side and the Addis Ababa side seem to be making the right sounds. I guess the risk is what the Eritrean role in that conflict is. If Isaias, you know, this totalitarian dictator of Eritrea, he's a pretty intimidating player and what he wants and how he's going to play the situation, I think that could lead to a re-escalation of the conflict. But the good news is, I mean, the other day we, I think when was it, um, in October, so last month from we did a piece about the desperate medical situation. This has been covered quite widely, but I don't think it's really got across maybe into the, definitely in the West. I mean, if you go back to the UK, I mean, no one really knows about this, but the level of suffering, the, the lack of medical equipment, people with very easily treatable conditions like diabetes or something, just dying in front of doctors, the urban starvation, which seems to be spreading. And by the way, I think kind of, you know, something which has been, really significant in this conflict is the use of armed drones. I mean, about a year ago now, it did like the TDF, the Tigran Defence Forces were going to sweep down and take Addis Ababa, the capital. It did look like that for a bit. There's a lot of chatter about that. But then the Ethiopian military pulled off this almost kind of stunning, another stunning kind of military reversal where they suddenly turned up with all these drones, which uh, was reported were supplied by the United Arab Emirates, Iran, etc., and Turkey as, as well. And these drones just kind of hammered the Tigrayan forces who were mostly just, you know, no mechanised units, more just men in sandals with old Kalashnikovs sort of thing. And they hammered them back into the region. But so, so that was a very significant state of thing, I think, just in terms of Afghan conflicts in general, because I think for the first time we saw drones being used on a massive scale. I mean, drones have been used by Western military actors, the US prime among them, prime example, in Somalia, for example but in terms of like an African government using them against its own people and the terror that that produces and the inability for most forces to be able to shoot these things out of the sky. So yes, but what I'm trying to say from all this is is I think that recently ICRC and uh, WFP have both managed to get food and medical supplies into Mekele, the regional capital of Tigray. And so this is a massive positive step, obviously. But it's unclear whether this will hold. I mean, obviously everyone hopes so because too many people have died horrific deaths in this awful war. So I was going to ask, you know, among these dispatches you're sending out, if any particular one stood out, I'm just curious, like how you told this story, how, I mean, did you choose to pick, you know, individual person and tell their story or, or if there's any one of the stories you did in that time that stood out just so we can understand a bit about how you told the story I think looking back on it I, I, I think one of the the best stories I did was probably one of the first ones and it was about a, a lady, a nurse in a hospital in Tigray her name was Miret and um, she's a 25 year old nurse and she started hearing kind of gunshots and bombs coming, you know, not that far away. And the hospital director came into the room, she said, and told her to to run for her life. And she didn't want to. She said she didn't want to. She wanted to stay with the patients. But then she said, 
But in the end, I left. And now I don't know what happened to those patients. I don't know what happened to them. Some of them were injured soldiers. Some of them were women in labour. And uh, we left everyone. And now I don't know how I'm going to live with myself. I don't know how I'm going to face God. And I think that really, um, that really stuck with me as a story. This young woman's utter terror running away. So I think that's one of the ones I wrote. And that was in the early days of the conflict. I think the best stories which have been written, at least in my publication since, well, I think, you know, I'm proud of the work I've done since. But I think the, some of the best stories have been by two fantastic kind of freelance journalists. One of them, Zacharias Zalalem, and the other one, uh, Lucy Kassa. Both are um, Ethiopian. Lucy is herself Tigrayan and was forced to flee the country because of the work she was doing on the conflict. And I think some of the stories they've done and the way they've had to navigate that conflict and how close it is to home and how personal it is and how unbelievably toxic the discussion around this is, how completely radicalised. And I, I think that's been incredibly impressive. And so I think their reporting has been absolutely superb and very proud that they um, they chose to write that in The Telegraph and to work with me on some of their stories as well. So next up is the lightning round, which is faster paced questions than, you know, tell me the story of your entire life. But feel free to answer at whatever length you want, short or long. Do you feel ready? Yeah, I'm ready. The first question is, what is a publication you read, listen to or watch just for fun that's not related to your job? It's going to be maybe a bit of a boring answer, but, you know, whenever I'm back in Europe, in London, whatever, you always get the FT weekend without fail every single week lunch with the FT, all that kind of stuff, really high quality journalism and quite nice to, yeah, nice to read it, you know, but it's not the most interesting example. <laughs> sure. And related, I sometimes don't ask this question only if something comes to mind, but is there a good publication that is related to your job that you want to shout out? I, th I think there's probably two articles which spring immediately to mind, two, two outlets. Uh, one is the people at BBC Africa Eye, which is kind of like an investigative version of the BBC. Uh, they've done some absolutely uh, startling, brilliant bits of journalism over the last few years, kind of combination of text and video, and really just, you know, doing investigative journalism on the African continent for an African audience. And that's really refreshing. And it's done really, really well. So that's one. And then I would also say as a secondary, Hum Angle, H-U-M Angle, which is an outlet mainly covering Nigeria, kind of uh, West African security issues. They've just got some brilliant stuff. And the journalists seem to be really, really well sourced to write well. And, uh, you know, you always, you can read through that and learn quite a lot about what's going on. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably say those two. What's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium, that you have consumed recently? A piece which really comes to mind is some of the work that uh, Manisha Ganguly has done. Up until recently, she was an investigative correspondent for the BBC, really um, with a, a real talent for open source OSINT uh, investigations. And some of the work she's done on Libya uh, she did a documentary, I think it must have been last year, exposing drone strikes, war crimes. And um, I think some of that stuff is she's done is just absolutely fantastic. And I would encourage anyone to look it up. I think it's done in coordination with BBC Africa Eye, which I mentioned before, or BBC Ar Arabic Eye. So, um, yeah, I would say that. 
And the next question is, is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job? It's slightly related to my job, but I don't do much reporting on it. But I, I think uh, increasingly I'm getting very, very interested in um, how big data is being used to manipulate populations, whether that be, you know, obviously a lot of reporting was done around Cambridge Analytica, how the Trump campaign in 2016 used this data, how the Obama campaign used kind of personal data scraped from kind of social media surveys, etc. And I, I think that's a really interesting and underreported subject because you see that some of these companies, for example, in Cambridge Analytica, did quite a bit of work in, in Africa. So it's kind of related to my job, but it's not something I work much on. Sure, that's a good answer. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good question. If I can, I'm just going to give a, a combination of two. They were both pretty troubled individuals, and I didn't agree with all their opinions, but the way that A.A. Gill, British um, kind of critic, wrote, and the way also that Christopher Hitchens wrote, I always found it quite amazing. I always, I just wondered how they did it, you know, <laughs> just extraordinary writers. So I think them probably without the alcohol and cigarette addiction, something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Good answers. And what's your most embarrassing journalism-related story? I think it may not sound that embarrassing or that... I don't, no, I think it was pretty damn embarrassing. I, 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 so I was... Um, I just started with The Economist. I really, really wanted to. I had arranged an interview with Alpha Conde, the president of Guinea. And uh, my French was decent, but definitely not good enough to interview a, you know, a Francophone president especially one as articulate as Alpha Conde. I've been reporting in the mines in Eastern Guinea and I was we were late coming back because of traffic. So I ran straight, basically, after like, you know, a five-hour drive from the West. I ran straight to the interview. I was sweaty. I was smelly. You know, I hadn't managed to shower. You know, my clothes were a bit stained as well. Just definitely not what you want to do the first time you interview a, a head of state and you don't want to come across disrespectful. So I had this translator who was going to help me along the interview. And uh, he was a guy from Guinea, very nice guy. But the moment he saw the president, he completely froze up and he just didn't say anything when I was meant to be asking these questions. And so I was stuck there with my ropey French trying to interview a president in bad French. And yeah, I managed it. But my God, it was embarrassing. Like, just terrifyingly bad. Um, <laughs> so yeah, maybe that. I don't know, maybe you've had more embarrassing ones, but that was pretty bad on my, um, for me. Just like imposter syndrome times 1,000, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tough, tough situation. And then to ask kind of the opposite of that, what's the coolest place or situation your job has taken you? Kind of a, a pinch me, I can't believe this is my life or my job moment. I think one of the, the reporting jobs just really ingrained in my mind was um, we were in eastern DR Congo with my photographer friend. And we um, we drove out into Masisi, this area which is kind of just beyond stunningly beautiful. It's just this kind of wonderful hillscape, rolling green kind of emerald hills with all these Belgium dairy cows, which are still there, and these kind of ruined Belgium manor houses which have been burnt down in years gone by. And we went out to report on the coltan mining there. And coltan, for those who don't know, it's like a pretty key mineral used for um, electronics. 
So, you know, it's all in your mobile phone and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of this stuff is done artisanally. Most of it is. And uh, we went out to one huge mine and it was almost like the sort of the Wild West. It just felt like, you know, you had these towns just built out of these houses built up like wooden planks, the mining towns, no electricity, nothing. And it's just kind of set against this incredible landscape. And you're just, you know, we're obviously the centre of attention as these two kind of Western journalists coming in. And um, everyone was so nice and friendly. It was slightly intimidating because it was just like everyone was staring at us. But I, I think kind of that was something which will stay in the memory for a long time, I think, that reporting trip. What is your favourite film, book, TV or other piece of media about journalists or journalism and why? Oh, I think I'm going to have to give the standard answer. I think Scoop by Evelyn Waugh. As a reporter who's worked most of his career in, in Africa, I think that kind of how cutting that book is and how, how funny it is and how even if it is just complete fiction, you do see some elements of British newsrooms even today in that. I think, yeah, they probably have to go for that. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Um, well, I wouldn't mind being like, you know, a champion swimmer. You're, you're pretty damn fit. Uh, maybe... Um, I think I'd probably go with something like a helicopter pilot or something like that. Because I think I've been in a few helicopters and I think it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all the questions. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Will. Well, well thank you so much for having me here. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Will Brown. Africa correspondent for the Daily Telegraph. I'll post links to some of the things Will talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com/foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called "Love Chances" by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode in January. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Oh,